The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. The heavens declare your glory, God, and the sky above proclaims your handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But in them you have set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man running its course with joy. It rises from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Your law, O Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony, Lord, is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts, Lord, are right, rejoicing our hearts. Your commandments, Lord, are pure, enlightening our eyes. And the fear of you, Lord, is clean, enduring forever. Your rules, Lord, are true and righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold, even fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them we are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who of us can discern our errors? Please, God, declare us innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over us. Then we shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. O Lord, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Grab your Bibles if you would. Shake like four hands on your way down. If you're already down, you have to shake five. How's everybody doing tonight? Good. It's good to be with you guys. Um, really excited to talk about what I've got to talk about in light of the fact, uh, or in spite of the fact that um, probably upset somebody for sure, but that's okay because we love, right? Um, <laughs> some people are laughing. I don't think you love. All right. Um, we're going to be talking about the environment tonight. Um, quickly, by the way, um, was it last week we talked about parenting? That was last week, right? Okay, so this weekend, um, please, especially you parents, please do not miss church this weekend. Um, we're going to actually tackle all those things that we couldn't tackle last week because we were working through all this other stuff and, and be, uh, kind of unrolling this whole new, um, it's really going to change the DNA of our church probably for a really long time. And so it's a really important week for you to be here, parent or not, it's important. So I'm begging you, please don't miss this weekend. Um, tonight we're going to be talking about the environment. I'm way more excited to talk about this um, than I was that last week. I got to be honest with you. Um, 
This issue is a a kind of a hot button issue, is it not? The environment has been for a really long time. Um, It's been something that's been on my radar for a while because when I was in college and I was taking philosophy courses, um, I took a class on environmental ethics. And it just so happened at the time that I was dating my wife here in Oregon, and I came out here to visit her for a little while as I was, I was studying NC State. And I used that time to go with my father-in-law, Vern, whom many of you guys know. Um, he was doing sales at the time uh, for truck parts, and he would go around and he was delivering things like brake shoes and stuff like that to all of these places all over the coast of Oregon and, and through our, our area um, where logging and stuff like that was done. And so I used that time going to visit all these logging companies um, to talk to people that were on the front lines of what at that time was a huge topic. Anyone know what it was? The spotted owl. Man, that owl was famous even in North Carolina, let me tell you. That was a big deal, right? Um, and so I was there in this class hearing all the evils of everything that Oregon was doing to the spotted owl. And then I came out here and got to talk and I got to see another side of it. And, and here's what I realized is topics like that and this particular topic is a lot more complicated than a lot of times it just comes off by watching the news. As with most things, Right? There's a lot of perspectives and there's a lot of things to consider and things are not really as cut and dry as we would like them to be. Um, I, I, talked, I spent some time talking with uh, Dale Johnson today. Dale goes to our church. Is Dale here today? You here? Yeah, Dale's there. He is raising his hand in the back. If you want to talk to him afterwards, I'm sure he would love to bend your ear a little bit. But um, Dale, if, if he likes what I'm saying, he might yell at me afterwards. We'll see. Um, but Dale is an environmental analyst himself. He has his own business now, doing environmental analyst, working with um, um, basically protecting land um, issues with regards to lumber and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, he, so Dale's sort of on the front lines of a lot of the environmental stuff that goes on. And he sees both ends of how a lot of this, these debates and these fights over things like environmentalism come to play. And, and one of the things he was telling me today that's really complicated things is that this has become now, as you're aware, such a political and polarized topic that um, it's to the point now that facts and logic don't even always matter anymore. Um, you've got people on one side that believe this and it does not matter what you show them. And then you've got people on the other side that believe this, and it does not matter what you show them. It's become a massive political playing card. There is a ton of political money in this world tied into this particular issue. So he was telling me that there's government agencies out there that it doesn't even necessarily matter if you can prove that something over here is safe or not, because if it even gives the appearance that it might not be safe for the environment, there's so much money tied to government agencies and the issue of environmentalism that it doesn't matter what you show anymore. What's going to happen is going to happen, and you're sort of stuck. Um, but But then you can have people on the other side that... They, they just assume no one knows anything and the scientists are all wrong and Rush Limbaugh knows more about the weather than anyone else. And so we're going to hate on all this other stuff and there becomes this polarizing. And so one of the things that when I was here in the early 90s working through all this stuff and then went back and did my paper, one of the, the, the big conclusions of my paper is that no one will give. No one will give. Because on whatever side you are on this particular issue, giving is interpreted as losing. And people feel that if we give on any of this stuff, now we've given ground to them and it becomes that slippery slope and we are all in trouble. 
And Dale brought up a, a great truth. Um, he, he said, what has happened is on, on one side, you have those who are absolutely fulfilling Romans 1, where Romans 1 says that there are those who are there worshiping creation rather than the creator. And so everything becomes about this. And he said, but the reality of it is, is these are people that don't have Jesus. And they're looking, they're hungering and thirsting, just like the woman at the well. I'm totally stealing all your stuff, Dale, because it was so good. He said, these people are like the woman at the well. They're thirsting for something, and they've grabbed this thing as the thing that we're going to run to. Uh, but the thing is, is that we have on the total other side, the same kind of a thing. Well, man's in dominion and these people are so clearly wrong that suddenly you can, you can characterize or caricature everything where anyone that cares anything about the environment are all long haired tree hugging hippies. That's what I grew up with. That's what I was taught growing up. And so there's no give in any of these things. And the reality of it is whether, whether you're afraid to give on this side or whether you're afraid to give on this side, the real issue is an issue of faith. I mean, the, the real issue is one of what does Jesus have for us and can we trust that God knows better than we do and that God's going to work these things out in the end. If you are the environmentalist that can't give on anything and you would rather all the owls live and all the people die, the owl will never be your savior, only Jesus will. And if you're on the other end of that and you think you are king and ruler of all the earth and you have everything under your control and dominion and you can do whatever you want with anything, you're going to find out how incredibly powerless you actually are. You need Jesus too. So there's a, there's a big spectrum of polarization on this. And so what we want to do is spend some time talking about this. And, and I'll go ahead and tell you right now out the gate before we even go further. I'll tell you what Dale said as I was talking with him. He said, the, the, the bottom line is this. The sky is not falling. God's word is good. His plan will endure. He said, I spend more time out here in the woods and more time dealing with this stuff than anybody. I'm telling you, Oregon's never been cleaner than it is now. No matter what's going on, there are things going on now in the world around us that are better than they've ever been before. And Jesus is still on the throne and we're going to be okay. But everybody needs to just chill. So on the count of three, we're all just going to chill really quick. We're just going <sighs> to... Before we go forward, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Yeah, you guys are chill. All right. So let's talk about environmentalism. Let's talk about the environment. When we talk about the environment, what we're really talking about today are the hot button, um, if you will, eco-crisis topics that come up today. So the world's not burning down, but this building is. So we... <laughs> I guess class is over. Um, so we're talking about things from ozone depletion, pollution, climate change, deforestation, carbon emissions, destruction of habitats, extinction of species, soil erosion. I mean, any of these things that get labeled under the era of ecological crisis and what are its effects on us, what are our responsibilities and all these things. And, and so I'm going to start right now with one that might bother some of you. It is inarguable that these areas are being affected in some way. Now you can argue, is this man that's destroying this? Is it just a cycle whether the, the, the global warming thing is going to come back around? Or, or, but animals are actually going extinct. They actually do. Now I, I don't agree with all the numbers. What I read today said three species per day go extinct, as in gone forever. And on one end that's heartbreaking, but then I'm like, wait a minute, that's like 1,200 animals a year. That's like, I mean, how many animals since I've been alive? So I, I don't know. I, I do know this. I know that people will adjust and mess with numbers to prove their agenda. They've been doing it since the beginning of time. Uh, you, you can watch Food, Inc. 
Some of you guys have watched that. There's some great stuff in that movie. There's some important stuff in that movie. And there's a whole lot of stuff in that movie that corporations that make money because of that movie did and dealt with. And then there's facts on the other side the other way. Like people will manipulate things in order to, the the bottom line is the bottom line, right? The bottom line is money. So we know that that's the case. Um, But what we're going to talk about here is the fact that there are areas where the climate is affected. And we're talking specifically too about things like conservation and preservation. Whether you feel that there's global warming or not, what is our responsibility to conserve what we have now, no matter what the temperature is, no matter what the climate is? What is our responsibility to the fish in the Klamath River when farmers are starving? What is our responsibility to fish in the Rogue River when there's a drought and the guys right here at our very own uh, dam right here at Lost Creek are, are adjusting flows and raising flows at certain times in the summer, knowing there's rafters on there that get in trouble every year, but the salmon are coming up, so we got to give them enough water to get here and all those kind of, like, what are our responsibilities with some of those kind of things? Um, one third of the world professes to be Christian, professes now. One-third of the world professes to be Christian and in Christian churches. So that is seriously debatable. And so the question is, what are our responsibilities, all that stuff? And if one-third of the world is in church, and because we are the church, and our, our whole, remember, our, our program here, worldview, looking through the lens of the Christian worldview, what is our responsibility here? So what is the Christian role in any of the environmental problems or solutions or any of the stuff that's out there? What are our responsibilities and what are our roles? And we want to avoid the unhealthy stereotypes that anyone that cares about an environment, the environment is a long-haired, tie-dye-wearing, Ashland hippie tree hugger. Or, or the other end that if you're a Christian, then you're a Republican tree rapist. And that you will just literally rape the world and take whatever you want and leave just a scorched earth behind you. We were, we're avoiding any of these kind of hot button things because I think we know that they're not true. Now, there's a few different approaches to environmentalism. One of them, um, I, I we'll call it, it's the naturalistic or it's a utilitarian approach to environmentalism. Don't write any of this part down, it doesn't matter. Um, utilitarianism or the naturalist approach is this. It says, we need the earth to survive. All of the earth is a resource that we need to survive. Therefore, it is in our best interest to make sure that we take care of the earth that we're on because we need it to survive. There's a big problem with that philosophy, though, because what if we don't need certain parts of the earth anymore to survive? So, for example, we don't need wild deer to survive. We don't. We have grocery stores. We have places that grow cattle. We have all those kinds of things. We don't need wild deer to survive. So if that's the case, and if our entire approach to environmental ethics and all those kind of things is based on a naturalistic or a utilitarian approach, says that we need it, then we should take care of it. If we don't need it, then we are no longer required or need to take care of it. It doesn't really matter anymore. Um, And so if we can recreate the elements that we need, if there's things that we can make in labs now, I mean, what is our responsibility? It becomes really man-centric. It really, the earth only matters as much as we need it and when we need it. Other than that, it doesn't matter anymore. Another one is pantheistic, and some of you are very familiar with this. A pantheistic approach says all of nature is God, and God is all of nature. Pantheistic meaning many gods, and the idea would be this, that God is in everything, that God's fingerprint is on everything. God's essence is on everything. Humans are just as valuable as plants or as animals, and animals and plants are just as valuable as humans, that we are all equal in the created order, and that kind of God is in all of that, and therefore we need to respect all of that. 
And for a lot of people, that sounds really good. Like, yeah, we should, be, we should respect everybody. God did create all these kind of things. You can even sort of make it sound Christian if you want to push hard enough and you get the right gullible audience. Like, this is what we want to do. We're just, we just respect everything. But there, there's a real problem with that is that it, it never works out that way. What always happens in a pantheistic approach to the environment is man is always downgraded. But because a pantheistic approach says we need to respect everything, and so if there's a problem, we need to remove the element that's causing the problem. And ultimately, in this worldview, what is always the problem? We are. In that worldview, everything's equal, but somehow, though man is, is man not a natural, part of the natural order? Absolutely we are. But don't you, do you guys realize even the language that gets used sometimes, man is removed from the natural order. In in many people, especially with this view, man becomes the alien to the natural order that's out there. And so what ends up happening, if you have a pantheistic worldview, you say everything's equal, but when there's a problem, we have to remove the problem. So man becomes downgraded. He's downgraded already because you're saying a man is just as valuable as a blade of grass. Okay, so he's already downgraded. Uh, but it becomes even worse when those kind of things happen. The way to clean up the uh, undesirable elements is to remove the undesirable elements. And ultimately, that always becomes man. Um, so it's a self-defeating view. Uh, the third one is you don't see as much, but, but you can live it out this way. It's sort of a Gnostic worldview. And, and so the Gnostics from way back in the day, and if you read the book of Colossians, Paul's writing against the Gnostics, even in the book of Colossians. It's a very old worldview. Um, the Gnostic worldview says all matter is evil. So everything tangible, material, all matter is evil. What is important, what lasts, the thing that should be emphasized is the spiritual. And therefore, if we're really spiritual, we want to reject anything of the natural order. We want to reject anything that is made of matter. We want to starve ourselves of any of these sorts of things. And so all the things of the spiritual essence of our life is what really matters. So there's not even a a lack of care for the environment. It's just a complete disregard. It's looking at all of creation as being something that's wicked and including even ourselves. And this, this even leads, and Paul talks about it in Colossians, it leads into to things like self-abuse and asceticism where we'll starve ourselves in order to try to prove to God that he is more important than this thing, this food, this reward, this pleasure, whatever any of these sorts of things are. But what we're looking for is a true Christian environmental ethic. That's what we want. What is a true Christian environmental ethic. And even in that right there, there are many people that would say, there's no such thing. That is an absolute oxymoron to say Christian environmental ethic because many people go, it is the teachings and theology of Christianity that are the biggest problem that our environment faces today. There are many people that not just believe this, they teach this and they declare it from the rafters. It's been going on for a long time. There's a man named Lynn White, Lynn White was a professor in Princeton who wrote a famous article many years ago called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. It was a very important paper, especially at the time, because some of the things he wrote about a couple of decades ago um, are actually playing out now. He was a brilliant man. And some of the things that he looked at from a scientific order and looking at the environment and trying to project what are, what's life going to look like 20, 30, whatever years down the road, some of that stuff is absolutely playing out. So it became a really, really popular and important work. But the problem is, is his conclusion In all of this, he said that Christianity is without a doubt the absolute main reason for our current crisis. 
He said that Christianity leads to a natural exploitation of nature because Christianity is all about man. Christianity is all about man. It's what's referred to as anthropocentrism. It's a, it's a religion in which man is the center and everything else revolves around him. And so he looks at Christianity as teaching that man has dominion over everything on the earth. Man owns everything. Only humans have a soul. Animals don't have souls. Plants don't have souls. Only humans are going to last. Only God cares about humans. God only saves humans. God came as a human. God put man in dominion over all the earth, all of this stuff. And so he views this, and these people would view this as Christianity is something that puts man on the top and makes the earth something that man can exploit for his own purposes. Everything he believed is divine, and humans are equal, but Christianity says that humans are made in the image of God different than everything else, and he said that this has created a, quote, superior and contemptuous, contemptuous attitude towards nature. And even today, people that still follow these teachings and still do this, they would say that even though we in America live in a post-Christian world, and we definitely live in a post-Christian world in America, that even though we live in a post-Christian world in America where Christianity is not the predominant influence on the world, the effects of Christianity have been so long lingering, it is still without a doubt the number one thing that is the greatest threat to the environment, the Christian worldview. So is that true? Is that what the Bible actually teaches? Because when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter so much what Lynn White teaches, especially for us as Christians. What's true? What does Christianity do? Well, let me introduce you to a couple more people. Uh, one guy is a, a guy, these are a little more current, a guy named Stuart L. Pym. He is a professor of, conserva at, of conservation at Duke University. So I must be really impressed if I'm quoting Duke University. I just want you guys to know, Tar Heel fan here, it kills me that I, the name Duke is even in my notes. But this guy, Stuart L. Pym, Carolina's number one preseason basketball, season's on now, actually. They're playing right now. Um, actually, Stuart L. Pym, professor of conservation at Duke University, and he, he basically has won every award you could possibly win within the sciences of conservation, ecology, environment. He's the Dean Smith, Carolina quote, sorry. He's the Dean Smith of the environmental world, okay? And that would kill a Duke guy to hear me say that. Um, and this is what he says. So he was being interviewed about all this, and he, and he, he, was, he was saying, man, we, we've actually had some great successes with regards to endangered species. And he talked about this one little monkey, it's about this big, um, that lives down in South America, and how they were able to find out that this particular monkey was on the verge of extinction. It was the only place left in the world where they were. And so how they were able to raise these conservation efforts, and they bought up all this farmland that was around the last area where this monkey actually lived. They replanted trees, and over the last few decades, that particular animal's environment has like quadrupled and its reproduction rates are sky high and they're already looking to move it off of the endangered species list and he was using that and several other examples especially for animals and things in the South American areas that they've been able to work with as great examples and he was heralding all these things and he was really excited and so then the interview began to push on him on some different areas they're asking him personally and they asked him so are you a religious man and he said absolutely and this is a quote oh yes I am a believing Christian for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? For me, that's an injunction from the gospel of John, meaning that we have an obligation to look after the world. We've been given stewardship. We cannot pointlessly drive species into extinction and eradicate our forests and oceans. That would be unfaithful to God. When we do that, we are destroying the creation that God gave us. Now that is a walking contradiction 
to what this other guy from Princeton is saying. He's saying that the Christian worldview puts him at odds with all of creation. And this guy is the leading, not just conservationist, but his specialty is dealing with animals on the verge of extinction. And he's having incredible success at saving animals in this position. And he's saying, no, no, no. It is my Christian worldview that makes me have to do this. And to not do this puts me in a place where I'm not just violating the earth, not just violating a monkey in South America, I'm sinning against God because God has given me a stewardship over these things. He's saying his Christian theology drives him to be an environmentalist and one of the most passionate one in the world. Let me introduce you to another guy. Some of you guys might want to Google this one. It's, it's, some, it's really fun and interesting to see some of this. And, and if you're into to like farming or growing gardens and things like that, they've got books and videos that, that you might enjoy. Um, it's called Polyfaced Farm. Has anyone heard of that place before? Polyfaced Farm? It's big maybe back on the East Coast, but Polyface Farm. And the farmer, the owner's name is Joel Salatin. It's well-known, very famous. It's been studied. There's been articles and TV shows done about it. And this guy, um, running this one particular farm in Virginia, gained notoriety because he was running his farm in a completely different way than anyone else was around there doing it. He, he subdivided up parts of his land using these, like, movable electric barriers. And what he started doing was, okay, I'm going to put all my cattle in this part, but only for so long. And he would pin off a certain part, whatever it was. I mean, good size. He was given lots of room for the animals. But he would only leave them in there for so long. And at a certain point, whether they were ready to do whatever they do with the cows or not, they would move the cows out and then he moved pigs in. And this is what was happening. So the cows go in there and they do what they do, right? They eat, they graze. But at a certain point, he moved them so it didn't completely eradicate anything that was growing in there. And what do cows leave behind? Pies, right? So then they brought in what? Pigs. What do pigs do? They roll in pies. And so he said for us, then they would move these fences, and they would bring these animals in and the pigs would come in and they would literally and even naturally like spread the pie all over the ground. Behind that, he would bring in chickens and he created literally this entire flow for the way he runs this particular um, farm. And the results he found from this were staggering. He never has to use anything with regards to pesticides or chemicals or growth hormones or any of that kind of stuff because he's found this way of making the animals and the the crops and all the things he has there flow in such a way the animals just do what they naturally do it's stewarded and shepherded and he's found infinitely higher growth rates on hay on his plants his cattle is like famous and sought after all of this sort of stuff and so when they interview this guy, they're like, where did you come up with this? And he, goes, he says, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. And when I look at creation and I look at how God has designed everything, he said, the, the Bible teaches that all of creation teaches about God. And so what's the best way? If, if a cow is designed to give testimony to God, what's the best way I can help that cow give testimony to God? Let it be a cow. Just let it be a cow. And, and, and he, he started studying some of these things and he felt like he had found God has created these flows and these balances even in nature. And so we just decided, what would it be like if we tried to take advantage of that and try to do this here? And the results that he's come are unbelievable. And this is what he calls it. He calls it forgiveness farming. He says, this is a, time of, a, a type of farming that by necessity involves grace and kindness to everything that we deal with including the people that we sell to. He said, instead of the dollar being the bottom line, he, and this is his quote, we walk in the dance of creation. 
Now, why does he do this? Because he believes that creation reflects the beauty of God. And he has chosen to take the bottom line aside out of it. It is not a super productive way to make a lot of money as a farmer at all. It is slow. It doesn't, it, it's, a, it's a much slower process. It's not like pump a bunch of hormones into a bunch of animals and we can just get the dollar. It's not about that. For him, this became a form of worship. And God has actually taken this guy and he's blessed him and he's getting a lot of attention because of it. So let's think about this for a second. You got one guy over here who says the Christian worldview is the biggest enemy the environment has. You got these two guys over here. One is the, the, probably the world's leading um, with, with regards to survival of endangered species. And another guy that's one of the most famous fars, farms now on the East Coast and is having incredible success with not touching anything, just letting the animals sort of do what the animals do, but stewarding it and shepherding it. And, and these two guys over here are saying, no, 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 our theology moves us towards creation. Our theology does this. Now, the naturalist, the person who says, no, the earth is here for our survival. It's pragmatic. This is, this is, it's ours. We own it. They would hear these kind of things, especially our farmer guy over here, and would say, this guy's a moron. Like, that, that makes no sense. Like, why does he need to do that? Why does he think God cares about that? Why does he have to go through all of that sort of stuff? And the other guy that's going down to South America, you got kids starving in China, and, or wherever kids are starving now, Africa, and China doesn't tell us what any of the kids are doing. They're probably starving there too. South America, he goes down to South America and is buying up land to save a monkey when this could easily be spent somewhere else. On, this is stupid. This guy's a moron. But, but maybe he's never read Psalm 65. Could you put this text up for me here? Psalm 65 says this. Speaking of God, it says, you visit the earth and you water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. Your water, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with the flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Like he, he's using creation as something that is worshiping God. Elsewhere in Psalm 96, it speaks of the trees and it says of how the trees are singing in chorus to, to God. And, and like this guy, this guy that's running this farm, he's saying, if this is something that's given testimony to the greatness and grandeur of God, then, then I want to at least be respectful of it. Now, the guy in the farm, he's killing the cows. Don't go too far with that, okay? He's harvesting responsibly. He's selling pigs. He's doing all this kind of stuff. He's not worshiping the animals. He's not worshiping creation over creator. He's not doing any of those things. But he's doing the best that he believes he can to absolutely do this whole farming thing that he's doing in a way that honors God's creation. See, this is what the Bible actually teaches us. The Bible doesn't teach us that we are environmentalists, that we are to uphold every animal over every human, and that's it. That would be worshiping creation over creator. The Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible also doesn't teach us that we are just to rape and pillage the land and do whatever we want with it. And in the end, God's going to come back anyway, and this is what he's given us. We have dominion. We own everything. The Bible teaches us that we are like curators. Think of a, a curator in a museum. 
A curator's job is to steward the museum or the gallery. And so he wants to make the display look good. He wants to tend the display. He wants to show respect to the artist, even in the way the art is displayed. Now, he takes stuff down from time to time, and he sells art from time to time, but he's respectful. He doesn't go in there and go, well, it's my gallery. I'll do what I want, and throw it around. And he also doesn't say, no one touch anything. This stuff is holy and sacred. No, he understands his job, and this is who we are. I mean, Adam's first job in the Bible, he's a gardener. And so he's working the soil. He's tilling the ground all for his own consumption. God tells him that. Everything is for you to eat except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he's given this job where he's tilling the ground. He's moving soil. He's planting. He's doing all this stuff. But he's also doing it in such a way that he's actually meeting needs and God is providing for his own needs through that, which even in that can be an absolute act of worship to a gracious God who provides for his people. But we're not exploiters. The Christian worldview to the environment is not to exploit the environment that God's not given us. I mean, enough examples about these different people. Let's talk more about specifically what the Bible says. And some of these things may be a little more surprising and a little more forward with regards to our responsibilities on that than you've ever really taken the time to think and realize that they are. Um, Let me give you an example. Genesis 8 and 9. In Genesis 8, what happens? Anyone know? Come on, somebody. Please, somebody. What? Flood. The rains came down and the floods came up. Why was there a flood? It was judgment, right? Man had sinned to the point that it was everything was completely out of control. The Bible says that the intentions of men were wicked all the time. Every thought, every intention was wicked. And so God uses a flood to destroy the earth, to judge sin, to purify, to wipe all of this kind of stuff out. You guys know the story. Noah, ark, float around for a while bird finds a twig, land on a hill, rainbow. So now we're to the rainbow part, right? They've been preserved. God saved them. They've been preserved. And God says, and he makes this covenant with Noah and others at this particular hill. Look what he says in verse 9 of Genesis 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and what? Every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and what? The earth. Now think about this for a second. Why is God making a covenant with the earth? He flooded the earth because who sinned? Man's sin. And the covenant He says to man is, I will never judge your sin again in this way by the waters of the flood. We get that because who sinned? Man. Why is he making a covenant with the earth? Did the earth sin? Romans tells us that the earth was subjected to its fallen nature because of man's sin. Not because the earth itself sinned. This is what he's saying from the very beginning, and it is a a, a theology that you can see play out through Scripture. He's saying this. He's saying he is absolutely committed to saving men from their sin 
and the earth from man's sin. This is a pattern that happens through the scriptures. This is what we see in Romans 8, which we'll get to in just a minute. And so, if I'm on God's side, and I see humans exploiting the earth, I'm exploiting the earth. You understand what I mean by that? They're just rape and pillage. We'll do whatever we want. We don't care about replanting. We don't care about caring for the earth. We're not being a steward. We're just taking. If we see people exploiting the earth, and we see that God's covenant with the earth was to protect the earth even from man's sin, then what side of that equation ought we be on when we see that? The Christian should be the person who is adamantly against the raw exploitation of the earth because that's what God clearly does. We never see that taught about when we're talking about genesis and sin. Now, you can go so too far with this, can you not? This is the same God who later with Abraham is going to say, I'm going to cut covenant with you. And cut covenant means, hey, you got a cow and a pig and a hen and a... This is the same God who Jesus, who came and, and taught all sorts of things about, you know, that he, turned, he was wanting to eat some fish. He chose fishermen even. So you can go too far with this, but we're talking about exploitation of the earth. Clearly, God is making a covenant of the earth. He's trying to defend the earth from man's exploitation. Let's look at another example. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Deuteronomy 25, 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. This is in the law of God given to the people of Israel. So this is what happened. When they had grain there, they would take these sheaves and spread them out along the ground. And they would take an ox and through rope and the yoke and the whole deal, they would tie these big, heavy stones to the back of the ox. And the ox would drag this stone around and it would crush and separate these sheaves and set the grain free, if you will, from what was there. Now, if you're the farmer and you've got this land and you have all this grain and your goal is the bottom line, then in the end, what do you want? You want to protect all of your property. You don't want to waste anything that you can, right? If you're an ox and you're dragging a stone around and grain is being set free, what's your interest all of a sudden? You might want some grain, right? And so God is saying, hey, look, don't muzzle the ox. If this ox is what you are using as an instrument to be able to do this, then you're going to share some of this with it. Don't muzzle the ox and protect your bottom line and leave it out. You're going to share your grain with the animal that's doing the work. It's in God's law. What else might the scripture say? Let's look at Proverbs 12, 10. This is with regards to animals some more. Proverbs 12, 10. Do we got that one? Do we have a Proverbs? I didn't give you a Proverbs. All right. Well, I'll just read it. Proverbs 12, 10. Whoever is righteous, think about this. Whoever is, man, I should have had a slide for this one. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Hear that again. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. In, in God's economy, a sign of righteousness is someone who actually has kindness and regard to the lives of the animals that are there. That, this is Proverbs twelve ten. I don't have a slide. Look it up on your own. Deuteronomy twenty nineteen. I do have a slide for this one, right? Take that question thing down. People are going to have some. Deuteronomy 20. When you besiege a city, okay, now we're talking to an army now. God's law, instructions given to an army that's going in to besiege a city. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees 
by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? (laughs) Think about that. He's saying, if you're coming in to tackle a city, you've got an enemy that you're coming in. The the program for any other nation at that time, you don't have to watch too many old movies in our day to see it, is one of go in, rape, pillage, burn everything to the ground. And then God's law comes in and there was nothing else like this. And he says, hey, leave the trees. They're not human. That's not who your fight's with. And there's a whole nother sermon on besieging the people and taking them. We'll deal with that some other time. Um, I was actually even thought about the other week, instead of doing the parenting thing, I thought about doing pacifism versus war. But me and Shane have been debating that lately, and I think he'd crush me right now, so I decided to skip it. But, um, but, but why in the world would God call an army to ecological restraint? He said, don't burn everything to the ground. Now, then we have to, as Christians, consider something else. There's something really specific that we as Christians believe about creation. We do not worship creation as this perfection that is to maintain. We don't do that. We believe something very specific about creation, and that is creation is what? Nobody. It's fallen. Creation is fallen. Okay, so there are people that would worship creation as this just perfection that needs to be maintained. But at the core of the Christian belief system is an understanding that creation is broken. It is deeply broken. It has been subjected to our futility futility through sin. So look at Romans chapter 8, verses 19. We have a slide for this one. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I mean, this teaches us that, that creation has been spoiled by man's sin and it longs. I'm not trying to put a soul into all of creation, but, but Paul uses language here to say, look, all of creation is groaning for the day when our sin is lifted and everything is made new, which means what? God's plan is to remake creation. God's plan is to make these things new. And and so this is what this means. If we look at this and we go, what is a Christian worldview towards the environment around us? And we see God cares about animals. He says righteousness is even tied to the way we treat things. God cares about creation. God cares about even the the trees on a battlefield. God cares about all these things. So what should the Christian position be with regards to to environmentalism? Here's what I'll tell you. It's a really easy way of saying it, and it applies to a whole lot of things. Christianity is a fighting religion. It's not a passive religion. Understanding the kingdom of God and the things that are going on in the world around us from man's sin, slavery, um, uh, any of these, poverty, any of those kind of things. As Christians, we have opportunity to show the world what God is up to, to be part of God's agenda within. And man, you talk about, we did a study on the the kingdom of God a long time ago, but you could go, gosh, there's so much to study in this. And and I'm just fighting rabbit trails like crazy right now. But but if we are on God's agenda, then our agenda is pushing back the effects of the curse that our sin brought back, because this is what God is ultimately up to. God is a God of redemption and reconciliation. 
And one day he is coming to put all these things back together. This is what he's going to do. The, the world doesn't understand this. Now, Albert Camus, who wrote a book called The Plague, I don't know if you guys have ever read it, it's a fantastic book. It's really, really good, and it's terribly unchristian. Um, the worldview that's in it, I don't mean it's like, perverted or anything. It's just an absolutely unchristian worldview. And it tells the story of this town in Algiers that um, this plague has kind of taken over. And first these rats are dying and then people are dying and, and the town gets quarantined. And there's these people that are like fighting to try to save this town and try to save this while everyone else is leaving. They're fighting to try to save it. And, and ultimately the question comes, is this God's will? Is this what God's doing? Is this like the flood, but here in this town here? Is this God's will? I mean, um, if he made the world this way, and if you don't believe in God, then at least nature, right? This is nature. So why should we fight this? Why risk your life to fight it? Why not just leave or run? There, if, if you believe that it's God's will, if you believe that God is just naturally doing these kind of things, then there's no reason to fight the plague. Just let nature run its course and everything's over. And, and, but the guy, the hero, if you will, in this particular story, he's fighting it anyway. He's like this noble character, except that he has no belief whatsoever in God at all. His character, heroic, has no concept of the fall. Um, and this is what he actually believes. He says this, he actually believes that if he fights the plague, then he's on humanity's side fighting against God. This is what he believes. He has to fight for humanity. He's on humanity's side fighting against God. And to allow the plague just to go through is what nature does. And his responsibility is to fight on behalf of these people against what God's doing. And there, there are people that believe that. They believe that Christian theology is against all these different ills that are going on in the world around us from an environmental standpoint or whatever. That can't be true. Because in the Bible, we have the story of Lazarus, a guy who is dead from his own plague, if you will. And he's in the grave and he's dead. And Jesus comes to the edge of the tomb. And I've shared this with some of you guys before. You guys know this. It comes to the edge of the tomb. And, and, and it's that famous passage where we get the shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. But, but it's more descriptive. Jesus' emotions are described to a greater detail than just Jesus wept in that passage. It says that when Jesus was there, he sees all these people weeping. He sees the family members of Lazarus weeping. Lazarus' dead body, his friend, dead body in the tomb. He's been there for four days. It already smells. It's already decomposing. And he sees all this stuff going on. And in the passage, it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit. And, and what we've done in sort of our Western sentimental mentality um, is we've looked at that Jesus wept, he was deeply moved, and we look at it in the same way that we look at memorial services here in America. Memorial services in America are, are mushy and sentimental, and we cry and we hug and we weep. And there's, there's reason for that, right? But that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, every English translation gets this wrong, but every, for example, German translation of the Bible gets this absolutely right, because that passage is never used anywhere else in the scripture to talk about sorrow. It talks about anger. It means that when Jesus stands at the tomb, and his friend is in the tomb and dead, and there's all these people weeping, and he is looking confronted headfirst by the effects of the fall on all of creation, he's mad. He's angry. When he sees the effects there, he's angry that death has taken his friend. He's angry that a natural body that was created in the image of God is corroding. He's angry that people he designed in hope for joy and happiness are weeping and heartbroken. He sees the effects of sin on the world all around him right there in front. And he is very righteously angry. He's angry. 
God is not for the plague. God is not for nature taking any of those things over. God is for the curse being lifted on us and all of creation. That is the ultimate goal of everything that he is doing. And so think about this. One day, the Bible tells us one day, Jesus is coming back. Do we believe this? Can I get an amen? Amen. Now, we tend to, again, go back to old sentimentality views, whether it's like our, getting our theology from an old Tom and Jerry cartoon or something. When someone dies, we float up into the ethereal space and we float around on a cloud with a harp and that's just sort of what we do. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. The Bible teaches that there's a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible is the only religion out there that actually teaches that God cared so much about matter that he became matter, that he came to the earth, that he died for the sins of humanity and will one day renew, remake, restore, and save matter and we will live on the new heaven and the new earth forever. Every other world religion teaches some ethereal whatever, but God, to God this matters His creation matters. For God so loved the world, he became a part of it so that he can remake it, so that we can live in it forever. And even in the scriptures, I mean, it should speak something to us about the fact that God's constantly pulling from nature to try to explain to us how much he loves us. So Matthew 6, for example, Jesus says, Jesus even, here's what's interesting. He's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about, hey, the last are going to become first. This is how you're going to serve people. You're going to die to yourself. And it's this completely new theology to a group of people that think he's the Messiah that's going to take charge and just rule with an iron fist. And what he's basically saying in the Sermon on the Mount is, no, it's a whole nother economy, man. You're going to lay your life down. Everything's going to be completely different. And as they're hearing this stuff, and there's a lot of people at this time following Jesus for what they can get from him, inevitably concerns are going to come. Lord, if we do this, how will we even survive? What are we going to do? God, if I follow your ethics, my business is not going to be very profitable. How will I pay my bills? How will I provide for my family? How will I care for all this? And Jesus, knowing this question is there, Jesus teaches and he says this, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Other translations say he cares for them. Are you not of more value than they? So so even in Jesus' teaching, he's reaching to the created order to show how much God cares for that in such a way to help us understand how much more God even cares for us. I think we should do the same. I think that Christianity is a fighting religion that leads the charge against the effects of the curse in all of its forms everywhere on earth. And I think one of the places that we should do that is in the environment because God is reconciling all things on earth to him. Now, if you're saying, so that means the spotted owl wins. No, no, God gave us the earth as a resource as well. There's a difference between having an exploitive view towards the earth and one that says, I'm gonna treat the earth with respect because God cares for it. And even as an act of worship to what God gave me. I mean, imagine Christmas morning, you give your gifts to your kids and instantly they just start smashing them against the wall and throwing them around. Are you gonna feel that they appreciate any of what you have done? So I believe that part of our responsibility to worship God is that we should have an environmental ethic that is not exploitative. Like we should care. We, we shouldn't be instantly opposed to an environmental move that affects the bottom line. 
We shouldn't instantly go, that's going to cost too much money and it's a waste and swing over to this protecting the bottom line kind of a thing because God's never been about that. That's what he's teaching even here in Matthew 6. He's, the bottom line is not the bottom line. You just follow me, obey me, and trust me to take care of the bottom line. Trust me to take care of you. But does it mean we don't eat meat? Good Lord, no. God gave us bacon. <laughs> Hallelujah, how good is he? He did. They're clapping. It's true, though. I mean, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to have joy. God wants you to enjoy the things that are out there. God wants you to be able to go in the river. I mean, there's no better feeling than going out in the river, catching a big fighting steelhead, and then bringing that home and be able to eat fresh fish with your family. There's nothing better than that. But there's nothing that drives me more crazy is when I see the same kind of people out on the river ignoring any of the laws that are on the land, exploiting, snagging fish, or throwing them on the bank because they caught another one that was too big and they're actually already over their limit. So let's throw this other one on the side and just let it die and we'll keep this one. And we'll just rape and pillage the land and do whatever we want with it. And we won't have any respect for anything out there. That is God's natural created order. And the first job he ever gave man was to steward it. And so my challenge to us is if any of us have been a part of the culture that just goes, everything's polarized. You're either the tree-hugging hippie or you're the staunch conservative that just, we can rape and pillage everything. I'm telling you right now, it is not that simple. And we shouldn't be so afraid to give ground to anyone that might disagree with us in other, in other areas if the ground that we're giving is in accordance with Scripture. We shouldn't be afraid of that. And I don't know about you guys, like, we live in the most beautiful place on earth. Like, I want my children to enjoy that. So I'm not an environmentalist. I think environmentalist becomes like this thing where we, we do esteem creation over creator. But I am a conservationist. And I am a preservationist. I want guys like Dale to have jobs because there's still trees up there. Not just stripping all the trees, leaving nothing, and then no one will ever benefit from any of that again. I, I want guys like we have people in our church that work for the fire department that go out and deal with issues out there and they do controlled burns when they can and they're working really hard to not just protect us and our safety but to also keep the places that we live beautiful. I want to teach my kids to fish. And it's, guys, elements of this stuff are ab, they are changing in places. We, we used to have steelhead runs of 20,000 steelhead that would come up. Now we get, if it's a good year, we get five or six. We haven't seen those days in forever. So the bottom line's not the bottom line. We have to, well, like most things that the, that the Bible teaches, we, we have to find that balance. We have to find that there's health in some of that kind of tension. And we have to be not so protective of the bottom line or our own pride to understand that, you know what, God has other callings on our lives over here and we should be a little less closed-minded to some of those things because we're afraid that we're going to lose the culture war to someone of a different political party. And we should be thankful. I mean, this would be a much harder sell, me teaching this, if we lived like in the deserts of Oklahoma or the big, you know, it's just like, well, so what? Everything's brown. Hey, you're right, let's go home. Like, it's not... We have been so blessed. I, I think that we should lead the charge in dealing with that. And, and I'll give you my first pet peeve. If any of you smoke, and we'll talk about smoking some other time, stop throwing your cigarette butts out the window. It drives me crazy. The world is not your ashtray. You have one in the car. If you don't, quit smoking even better. But I think God's given us a great gift, and I think, we would, I, I think it's sinful to not take care of it. Amen? 
Okay. Questions? Do we have any? Yeah? What is the biblical perspective of the Keystone Pipeline? Strangely enough, the Bible is not, does not mention the Keystone Pipeline at all. What's next? <laughs> uh, I know the Bible says the new heavens and the new earth. In the end, does God destroy the earth and start over or use the earth? Uh, we'll find out. Um, there's, there's debates over that, looking at some of the passages where they say, seeing that everything will burn, does that mean that everything's just gone, it's a recreation, or does he just purify everything and start over? Um, if you are a follower of Jesus right now, I think you're going to have a front row seat to see the whole thing play out. Next. You mentioned deer are no longer a necessity for us. Oh, I've upset a hunter. Um, in light of being a good steward of God's creation, what is a Christian's role when it comes to hunting animals like this in today's day? Well, I'm a fisherman. I, I do not need a steelhead to survive, um, but I do believe that God has blessed us with, with all of that. I, I, I believe that it is a lot healthier to go catch a steelhead fresh out of the river and a lot more um, productive for my family and all that stuff and way more fun than to just go to Food for Less and buy one. Um, but I also support organizations that do things like, pay, even, even as a fisherman, when I buy a license every year, that pays for the eggs that every hatchery steelhead that I ever catch and take home actually came from, okay? So every one. So every year when I pay and when I join Trout Unlimited and other things like that, I'm actually paying money to make sure that that ability is actually maintained moving forward. But even in then, I'm, I'm, I'm not an exploiter. Um, I never touch a native fish out of the river. I'm going to let it go. Um, even in the winter, like from December to March, you're allowed one native fish. But I just feel like, man, if that thing's been making it here and there's so few of them anymore anyway, just, I, just let it go. But a hatchery fish, it's just going to end up in the hatchery anyway. I'll take that home. So I take care of that. The same thing goes with hunting. I, I mean, actually, if you look at some of the, some of the, the history of some of this stuff, it's, it's some of the organizations that, that deal with hunting, and it's the money that comes from things like hunting licenses that actually pays to actually protect a lot of the environmental movements with regards to hunting and stuff that are out there. So there's actually a huge argument to be made that said that without hunters, responsible, non-exploitive hunters who actually pay for their tag and don't keep the tag off their deer so they can shoot three instead of one, but the people that do that are actually the ones who are pushing a lot of the environment agenda to protect the deer that are out there more than anyone else. So there's, it's a, there's a balance in that. God didn't give us creation that we put it into a museum. It's, remember, it's the curator thing. Sometimes you're selling the art and sometimes a new art comes in, but you're still respectful. You, you respect the artist enough to respect the work that's there. And I think even in that... I, I would take it even for, I think even in hunting, you can do that. If you can't hit a deer confidently from a hundred yards, don't take the hundred yard shot. You just be respectful and don't just let a, I mean, I've seen deer with arrows hanging out of its neck and stuff like that. If you can't shoot a deer with a bow and arrow, don't shoot a deer with a bow and arrow. Just be responsible is all I'm saying. That's all. Sorry, I could go on that one. The fishermen drive me nuts. Um, what position should Christians have now in regards to the spotted owl? Um, well, if there's one in here, don't look up. That'd be the first position. Keep your head down. Um, yeah, see, those are tough balances, right? So what do you do when you're talking about the survival of an entire town versus an owl? Those are hard. And, and I, I think that the Christian position with regards to the spotted owl should be one of humility. That's the one it should be. That's willing to talk to people on both sides and go, this is a pretty complicated issue and we need to be able to talk through some of this stuff. 
I mean, like there were, there were stories where whole towns shut down and became ghost towns, essentially. And businesses went and families were starving to death and couldn't eat because of this when, when there was really incomplete science to determine whether they were actually saving the thing in the first place. So I think both sides need to have some humility and come to the table and say, what are we going to do about this? There's a situation we don't want to just kill off all the spotted owls, but I'd like Billy to grow up. So what are we going to do here? And to be able to come to the table and have some sort of humility and not fear that if you give any ground, suddenly everyone else wins. Like, just be humble and let's do the best we can. That's, the, that's my position. Let's just do the best we can. Next. What is the biblical perspective of the Keystone Pipeline? Um, they don't have one in the Bible, I don't think. Um, I, I don't know enough about the Keystone Pipeline to offer you any perspective on that whatsoever. Um, I don't, sorry. Um, I can't believe nothing on fracking came up, uh, nothing on oil drilling, none of that kind of stuff. You guys spared me. Um, but uh, look, they're, they're all complicated issues. They're all really complicated issues. And some of the science behind some of this stuff is real. Some of it really is. And, and some of the issues that the scientist or the environmentalist community pushes on the other is extremist. It really is. And we need to have some sort of balanced, humble view at it. But I still think Christianity is a fighting religion. And we should be people who lead the charge in respecting the things that are here. If for no other reason, look, Romans 1 itself says actually God's created order is what gives testimony to who God is all over the earth. So don't mess up the testimony. Like, preserve the things that are actually giving glory to God for people. There are people that go out there all the time on a Sunday while we sit in church. We'll go to places like Crater Lake, and whether they know it or not, God is speaking to them. So let's let him speak. That's what I would say. Amen? Let's all stand. God, I thank you so much for your majesty. I thank you so much for what a great creator you are. Um, Lord, with issues like this, they're complicated and they're, uh, Lord, we haven't even scratched the surface. They're they're so multifaceted. And I I just pray, God, that you would continue to cultivate in your people a desire to please you over ourselves, a desire to honor you over anyone else, um, and a desire to be humble like you in our dealings with anyone else. Lord, these are issues that that, Lord, maybe if, if we wouldn't be so quick to polarize over, maybe these are opportunities that we would have to be able to get involved with people who don't know you and be able to tell them of you. Lord, I just pray that your church would not be guilty of laziness if there are areas of stewardship that we have failed in. And I definitely pray that we're not in that boat because of our own pride, Lord. So God, help us to know what best to do in all this stuff, whether it's the foods to eat, how to treat our pets or our animals or, or whatever, or, or, or what to do when we're on a hike. I pray, God, that you would just help us to steward what you have well, not just for its sake, but God, may we steward the earth well so that people learn about you. May that be our goal. So Lord, what, whatever humility we have to bring to the table to teach people about you through your creation, Lord, I'm game. Will you show us how we can do that and forgive us for areas that we haven't? For those, Lord, who worship creation over you, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would just be able to speak through to them. And I pray, God, that you would use specifically the creation of Southern Oregon that we are so thankful for. I pray, God, that when people see Roxy Ann, McLaughlin, Diamond Lake, Lost Creek, the Rogue River, Crater Lake, when, when people see these areas, Lord, may they just hear you shouting your name into their hearts, Lord. And I'm just thankful for what you've done. Lord, what a gift putting us in this place. There are, there are a lot of places in the world that have been 
just run down or, or whatever, but you've put us in such a beautiful place. So if, for no, no, if nothing else, Lord, tonight, we can just say thank you for gracing us. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. amen. Don't miss church Sunday. I love you guys. God bless. Go hug